G'day folks, hello, uh, thanks for joining us today. We've got a few people on the live event today. Uh, my name's Stefan Angelini, I'm the host today. I'm the host of the, of the Investor Tops podcast, but as well as this special series, uh, the ASX Stock Tips Education Series. We're fortunate enough to be joined by Watershed today, who manage over $700 million worth of assets. Before we get into it, I'm gonna show you why we are here. Here's a little video on today's session. All right, all right, everybody, welcome back. Hello, on the screen, I've got uh, Daniel McDonald, who founded and created the ASX Top Ticks Facebook group, um, is also director of McDonald Legal. Uh, Adrian Rowley from Watershed Funds Management, who's going to be our feature present presenter today. Thanks a lot for coming on. And I'm, of course, your host, Stefan Angelini. I run Angel Advisory, a financial advisory practice based in Melbourne. Um, it's quite special today, coming out of reporting season, which is, of course, something that grabs everyone's attention. Um, we're lucky enough to be joined by Adrian to give us a bit of a wrap on reporting season. Um, if you don't know Adrian, he manages um, quite a large company with a lot of funds under management. Um, they've got a few different sectors to their business. They run what's called um, SMAs or managed accounts. Some of the some of the areas they invest into are international sectors. They invest into large cap Aussie, Aussie sectors. Uh, they also go into... Uh, Adrian, that's your microphone that's going a little bit crazy, so I just muted you quickly there. Um, they also do. They also have a, a quite a good focus on emerging markets um, and emerging leaders, as well as small caps, which is um, obviously of big interest to the group. Um, but what I might do is I might kick it off with uh, introducing Daniel and Daniel's involvement in the group. Daniel, would you mind introducing yourself and uh, maybe firing off a few questions to Adrian just to get us going? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Stefan, and hello, uh, members. Welcome to. Um to our video today. Um, it's really great to uh, to have you, Adrian. Thanks a lot for being here. Um, a little bit about ASX no Stock worries. Tips Group. We, um, we started the group about about four years ago. We just wanted to get a community together. We noticed there was a bit of a, a hole in um, in Facebook in terms of having a, an online community where people could share trading ideas and insights into companies and sectors and and uh, and emerging, uh, emerging industries. Um, so we started the group with just a... A handful of members, um, and since then it's now grown to be uh, Australia's largest ASX stock trading community on Facebook, and we're just about to tip fifty thousand members. Um, and I guess you know the benefits the, the members get from the group is the ability to share ideas and uh, and um, and communicate thoughts on uh, particular companies, and uh, and use some of the contribution from the other members to formulate insightful investment decisions. Um, and in between. A lot of the rocket emojis. Sometimes we actually get some of those <laughs> <laughs> insightful uh, insights they shine through. Um, quick question for you then. Uh, so since March, there's been significant growth uh, in the IT sector. Um, assumption being a lot of this growth probably driven by a large proportion of the world's global workforce working from home um, and having to mm. utilise. Um, in IT infrastructure in order to function and, and do what they need to do. Um, does Watershed have a view that this uh, growth in the IT sector is going to continue in the uh, medium to long term? Yeah, look, we do. I think, um, you know, what, what, what this whole COVID crisis has done has really accelerated a lot of the thematics that are driving the IT space. Um, so if you think about the big tech sectors, the Amazons, the Microsoft, a lot of their structural growth is coming from the shift to the cloud. Um, and this environment has accelerated that. Um, plus, obviously, working from home, um, everybody buying online. Um, so it's really accelerated a lot of these themes that have been positive for the tech space, you know, for a number of years. Um, but what we've what we've also seen, I think, is more of a, um, a there's been a big macro driver as well in that, um, and and I'll touch on that a little bit in in our presentation. But in in an environment of ultra low interest rates, with central banks pumping money into the system, um, it's very similar to the environment we had coming out of the GFC, and and really any business that can grow its earnings in a low growth environment, which is what we're expecting for the next few years as the world slowly gets out of this, um, people are willing to pay a premium for that growth um, when it's hard to find. So you've seen really, really strong multiple expansion right across the, the tech space um, to a point that it probably was a bit stretched and a bit overvalued. And we, we've, we've seen the NASDAQ come back pretty sharply. 
um, and I can comment on that um, a bit as well. So, you know, all of this cheap money out there is flooding its way into markets. QE is designed to reflate asset prices, but in the short term, it can really distort asset prices. Um, and the first two sectors that we saw that happen to really were the gold complex and, and some of the tech stocks, not just US, but here, um, the Chinese tech stocks, Israeli tech stocks, there's been a big wave of money chasing that space. Quite, quite a quite an interesting space. Now, Adrian, I know you you guys also run an emerging markets fund. Um, we're going to learn more our following reporting season on some of the big the big cap stocks and how they reported. Yeah. Um, in the in the emerging leaders fund, they obviously look into smaller companies, which is what a lot of the chat is within the group. Um, what has driven a lot of the outperformance in your fund over the last few months? Sure. Uh, there's a couple of things. Um, the first one is that we are very dynamic in how we manage the asset allocation. So we spend a lot of time thinking about market valuation, um, the ultimate macro environment and earnings outlook, and we we, we manage the um, the market weights fairly actively. So, you know, coming into the correction in Feb and March, our mid-cap portfolio was 34% cash. Um, maximum cash for that mandate is 40%. So we, we, we were really concerned about the environment at the start of the year. Um, we had a lot of cash. Now, when markets melted down in Feb and March, I mean, the large cap stocks, and I run a large cap portfolio and spend most of my time there, you know, large cap stocks were off 20, 30, some 40%. But in that mid cap space, it was a bloodbath. You know, there were stocks that were off 60, 70%. I mean, after pay, which we own, got under $10. Um, you know, it was, it was just incredible. So we... Uh, you know, we got fully invested in March. So we, we came out of that March quarter with only 4 to 4% cash. So we got about 30% of the portfolio into mid cap stocks in, in that correction. Um, and really there were some high quality companies that whose share prices halved or more than halved, despite being businesses that we thought should hold up fairly well in this environment. So a good example is, is Collins Foods. You know, they run um, KFCs, franchises and, and stores across the country. Um, you know, that, 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 that should be a fairly defensive, resilient business, um, but the share price more than half during that correction. And sure enough, we came out of this environment and they had strong sales growth, strong revenue growth and, and continued to deliver earnings growth. So, you know, it halved, but it snapped back to where it was, you know, within a couple of months of, of the low. Um, so, you know, for us, equities are inherently volatile. Mid cap stocks are even more volatile. Um, so we tend to hold a higher level of cash in that mandate um, because you do get opportunities to deploy cash. And for us to deliver, you know, a, 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 what we've been in markets for sort of 20 years now, and there's nothing, nothing worse than having a major market dislocation and not being able to do anything about it. Mm. Um, so, you know, while while it's incredibly important to, to get the stock calls right, it's also incredibly important, I think, to, to manage the overall weights of the portfolio. There's times when everything's expensive and you should be disciplined and taking money off the table um, and, and be patient um, to, you know, sit back and, and make sure you've got a decent amount of capital to buy these dislocations when they happen. And really, over the last 12 years, we've had one every couple of years, you know, every two, mm -hmm. two and a half years, you, you've kind of had a, a fairly major market dislocation for, for one reason or another. And even if you're going to look at indexes and the ASX 200 index returned, I think it was 19% for the 2019 year. So typically after periods mm. of high rises will come a little bit of a fall. So you want to make sure your asset allocation is positioned the right way. Look at what's happened in the past, maybe free up some cash so you can take advantage of opportunities. I mean, that's what, and that that's the game basically. Spot on. Yeah, look, spot on. Even, even, in, even in good years, you, you tend to get a correction of 10%. Mm. Or so for you know for one reason or another. Cash is king. Cash is king. That's what they all say. Um, At times, <laughs> Adrian, what, what we might what we might head into is into into the presentation. Um, you've got some really good really good data there, uh, especially coming out of reporting season. And what we might do is we might take some questions from the audience as you're presenting and fire off some questions at the end of it. So, um, sure. what I'll do now is I'll bring up the presentation, and I'll hand it over to you, mate. Great, thank you. Um, so. You can see my screen here if I flick through the slides. Yep, can see the whole PowerPoint. Yep, there we go. Brilliant. Uh, that's me when I had a little bit more hair. Um, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so, look, I'll start with I, I can't help but do a little bit of a, a macro backdrop. Um, I, I won't go to, to throw too much detail, but sitting here in Melbourne, you know, from our study, the, we're locked down and it's pretty easy 
to get um, you know a, a, a bearish kind of view of the world and markets and the global economy when when we're in total lockdown. But um, but the rest of the world is continuing continuing to open up um, now. Now we're watching this very closely at the moment because you have started to see some restrictions because of the second wave in in Spain. Um, the UK is talking about it a little bit, um, so you know that 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 has us a little bit concerned, but. Broadly speaking, from the lockdown in March and April, the rest of the world has continued to open up. So this is just Google's mobility data. Um, if you look at um, retail, for example, and, and this talks to those structural themes that we were talking about uh, a little bit earlier, you know, retail sales, and sorry, I should go, the, the, the baseline here is, is January and February, so before the virus hit. So retail sales are now only sort of 10% below where they were. But if you go to something like, um, you know, workplaces as well, um, workplaces now are only sort of 20% below where they were. So despite the fact that we're locked down here, um, most of the rest of the world, certainly Europe, um, large parts of the US and, and large parts of Asia are, 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 are largely back to work. Um, so, you know, with if that continues, then effectively what we're um, looking at is, is, you know, a short, very sharp, recession this year um, but coming into next year um, that we should have relatively synchronized global growth from most parts of the world and generally speaking that's a pretty good backdrop uh, for for equities okay but having said that we came into reporting period with about 15% uh, cash with a view that we would get an opportunity to to add to a few holdings during a reporting period because it was likely to be a pretty tough one um, you know, the whole the whole country was locked down pretty much for, for, for the last three months of the financial year. Um, and in August, um, as results were coming out, Melbourne was back in, in lockdown again. So our expectation was that, you know, not only would, would, would results be um, fairly challenged, but, but outlooks would be fairly uncertain. Um, so our view was that, you know, we've got to get an opportunity to, to deploy some cash during reporting season. Um, having said that, during August, the market was incredibly resilient. We, we started started the month at about 6,000, we finished the month at about 6,000, and there wasn't a lot of volatility. Uh, having said that, we've seen a 5 or 6% fall uh, in the first few weeks of September, um, and, and that's giving us an opportunity now to deploy some cash. But talking about valuation, so um, as I mentioned, we spend a lot of time thinking about the macro view and market valuation, as well as the earnings outlook and determining, you know, what exposure we want to markets. This this chart here in the shows the ASX 200 in the blue line. So you can see we nudged sort of 7,000 before the correction, uh, shot all the way back down to 4,000, but then rebounded really quickly um, back to 6,000 we hit at the start of June. Um, the red line here shows the underlying earnings of the ASX 200. So this is Bloomberg consensus forecast. So effectively, you saw analysts rebase earnings down about 30% um, as, as the world sort of went into lockdown. Um, what is interesting is here in August, so, so what this shows is that earnings expectations actually declined over the course of, of the month as results were being delivered. So, you know, a lot of businesses didn't, didn't um, meet um, the, the earnings forecast that had already been pulled back 30%, but the market held up fairly well. Um, and, you know, there was almost a little bit of exuberance and we certainly saw that play out in some parts of the market like the S&P 500 and, and, and the NASDAQ and, and some of those tech stocks. Um, having said that, um, we've seen a little bit of a pullback and that makes sense. So just to give you a feel, um, you know, on, on a current sort of earnings multiple, um, here at around 6,000, we're trading on about 21 times earnings. Um, we've now pulled back to sort of 58, 50-ish um, today. Now, the one-year forward multiple of our market is about 18 and a half now. Um, so that's getting back to a more reasonable level given where interest rates are currently, but it's still fairly elevated. So there's not a lot of room here for anything to go wrong um, with this second wave or lockdown. So markets are very much pricing in um, the world get, continuing to get back to normal over the next six to 12 months. Okay, so here's just that one year forward multiple. So um, it's about 18 and a half times um, next year's expected earnings. And the market has an earnings growth of about 6% penciled in for the ASX 200 at the moment. So, you know, where we're trading over the next six months 
um, that whether that 6% is held will be critical. So as we know, Victoria is still in lockdown where, you know, a bit over a quarter of the country's GDP um, will have half-year results coming out in February. Um, so the longer this lockdown lasts in Victoria, the more risk there is um, to those half-year results in, in February. Um, and, and you'll see that a lot, a lot of the buying that we've done, we're very much focused on, on some of those global earners that aren't necessarily leveraged to the domestic economy here. We're pretty cautious on domestic cyclical stocks that are leveraged to, to economic activity here. Um, what is interesting though here is that, you know, the long run average multiple of our market, is, as most of you would know, is kind of 14, 15 times. Um, so 18 and a half is a relatively elevated multiple, but you're more comfortable paying an elevated multiple for the market when earnings have rebased 30% lower. So if we take a two or three year view, you would expect the earnings of the market to get back to where they were. So you've kind of got 20 to 30% earnings growth over the next two to three years, which will see that multiple move back to a more normal level. So you're more comfortable paying an elevated PE if you think we are through the cyclical low in, in, in that earnings number. The other key driver, which I touched on a bit earlier, is this ultra low interest rate environment that we're in. So, um, you know, our, our cash rate here is 25 basis points. The 10 year bond yield here is, is, is 90 basis points, 0.9%. So, you know, the lower cash rates are, the lower that um, risk-free bond yield is, the more that people will pay for the market, the higher the multiple will be. Um, again, I, I can talk to that in detail down the track. It's not an issue for the next year or two, um, but the market, the next, you know, major kind of market correction in our view will probably be when, when central banks start to try to normalise interest rates. Now, that's probably not for at least a couple of years, um, but that's that's really a key thing to uh, to watch. Okay, now this is a, a, a kind of a, a, a bit of a scary and a bit of a disappointing uh, graph here. Um, you know, we, we often get questions about why the Australian market has, has lagged the US so much. Um, you know, we, we only recently kind of got back to our GFC uh, or pre-GFC highs in January and, and we're now well below again. Um, and the reason there is that, you know, we just haven't delivered the same underlying earnings growth that the US has. So this is the same chart that I showed um, earlier, but just for a longer time frame. So it goes back to 2005. So it shows the ASX 200 in blue here. Now we sort of hit six and a half thousand, um, a bit, bit over. Um, just before the GFC, um, we just hit that level again before the, the COVID-19 correction. And what the red line shows you is the underlying earnings of our market. So we know that earnings got whacked 25 to 30% during the GFC. Um, they progressively recovered. 2015-16 um, was when we had that China trade balance issue. We saw iron ore plunge, oil prices plunge. We had about a 25% market correction then, um, but recovered really nicely 2016-17-18. The 30% sort of decline in earnings expectations for the current year has seen earnings now back to the low um, that we saw um, at the GFC, the, the, the 2009 GFC recession low. Um, so the key question now is how long will it take for this figure to get back to uh, where it was? Is And, and, and that's uh, the talk about, you know, what kind of a shape recovery is it? Is it a V-shaped, an L-shaped, a W-shaped recovery? Um, now, our expectation and the market's expectation is that earnings probably aren't going to get back to where they were till about 2022, 2023. Um, but the market, as you can see, has snapped back um, pretty quickly um, to, you know, almost 6,000 again. Now, our view coming out of this correction in March, and as I mentioned, we, we aggressively bought the dip. We were pretty comfortable to do that when we saw just the extent of the actions of the Fed in the US, um, just how much money they were pumping into the system, um, their, their, their commentary that they came out and were basically buying anything distressed. So they really underwrote credit markets, which meant that this would not be a full-blown credit crunch like the GFC, it would be a recession. Um, so they stabilised the financial system. We were comfortable to buy markets, but um, they've snapped back incredibly quickly. Um, so our view coming out of this was that fair value for our market was sort of 55 to 5,700. And that's effectively applying a normal market multiple of 15 to 16 times on trailing earnings. So if you take 
If you take the 2019 reported earnings and we assume that we're going to get back to that level in a couple of years and we apply a normal kind of market multiple of around 16 times, then that gets you that sort of 55 to 5700 range. So that, that that's our kind of assessment of fair value for our market. Um, now, we thought that it could overshoot to, to sort of 6000 as we got closer to Christmas and as the economy and the world was starting to open up. Um, but it, it, it shot through that in the first week of June. Um, so within our large cap mandate, we went from fully invested back to 15% cash. Um, with our emerging leaders portfolio, we went from fully invested um, back to about 17% cash. Um, so that's that's um, just, just talking to the point I made earlier about dynamically managing the overall market exposure and, 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 and cash weights. Okay. So we just get, we've got a quick little question sure. from um from the group. Uh, someone said, "Well, if there is a, a COVID vaccine announced, um, what sort of a market do you think we will have following yeah, that?" Yeah, look, I um our view very much is this is this is very much a buy the dips market. So what is interesting, I think, is that you know the the, the Fed at their meeting last week um, basically came out and said. They're not expecting to increase interest rates until 2023. So if we have two years of central banks being super supportive um, and ultra low interest rates, as soon as people get confident that this economic recovery is sustainable, that money will continue to flow into equities and credit because, you know, you're not going to get any money out of cash, any return out of cash, any return out of, um, you know, bank deposits any return out of government bonds. So you're going to see money flood into anything that can deliver some earnings growth or anything that can deliver some yield. Um, so, uh, and I'll back up a little bit. If you go back to late 2019, early 20, um, so this was when the Fed had their mid-cycle adjustments. So they cut rates um, by 0.75% to 1.5%, um, to 150 basis points or 1.5%. Markets absolutely ripped and traded up to kind of multiples of about 20 times. So the view then was, you know, that the, the lower rates are getting, the higher the, the, the market multiple should be, and, and you, you saw money flood into markets. Well, now that um, Fed cash rate is not 1.5, it's 0.25, and the 10-year bond yield is not 1.6, it's 0.6. So ultimately, you know, our view coming out of this was that once there's a bit of certainty that the economy is getting back to normal globally, and that's obviously very reliant on what happens with this vaccine. Um, but if you're sitting here and there is a vaccine announced and the world's starting to open up and rates are still at zero, well, I, I think you'll see more multiple expansion from the market and, and it could push higher. Now, that was our view coming. So yeah, that was our view coming out of the correction in, in Feb and March. Um, we thought that markets could could really rip towards the end of the year. But, uh, you know, interestingly, all of the um, things that we expected to happen all happened within three months, not over a mm. six or 12-month period. Um, so markets kind of priced all of this good news in very, very quickly, um, which then meant that we had to start being a little bit more cautious. Um, so, you know, our view is that, you know, taking a 12, 18 month view, we, we think equities will, will still continue to perform and continue to outperform most asset classes. Um, but given that valuations are somewhat stretched already, um, that, you know, there is risk in the short term that we have a bit of a pullback and, and that's actually kind of happened over the last two or three weeks, but it's still very much a buy the dips market. Yeah. So long-winded answer for you, but hopefully that that, that makes some sense. Well, um, so, slide. <laughs> great. so yeah, so um, so we came into reporting season with some elevated cash levels, um, not not super elevated, but as I mentioned, fifteen percent in our large cap portfolio. Um, the market came off five six percent, and we've now started to just trip that, that into the market. Where, where we say that the short term um, outlook is a little bit challenged, just because you know we, we we are in lockdown here, and while the economy has globally started to rebound quite nicely, that, that mobility data has flattened off a little bit. So with the second wave happening, if you look at things like, um, you know, global flight numbers, um, those, those sorts of measures, it looks as though things are starting to flatten off a little bit. Um, so what that means is there's a bit of risk that the earnings rebound is not going to be quite as V-shaped as markets are currently pricing. 
Um, and, you know, those previous charts that I had showed that, you know, with the market trading on sort of 20 times, um, even though we're expecting energy to recover over the next couple of years in the short term, it's hard to see a lot of upside there. Um, so we're happy to, you know, to wait for the dips, um, but, but very much want to, want to get fully invested during those, those corrections. Okay. Um, so the 2020 reporting season, I'll run through just some of the key um, observations, I guess, and, and themes that we saw. Um, so broadly speaking, earnings from the ASX 200 fell about 20% uh, for the 2020 year based on uh, off the 2019 financial year. Um, but coming into the correction, the market was pricing in, you know, 8 to 10% earnings growth. So it went from a market pricing in, you know, almost 10% earnings growth to earnings declining 20%. So it was about a 30% rebasing of earnings expectations. Um, but the biggest decline, no surprise, was from the banks. The banks reported uh, shocking results. Now, it was only CBA that reported the full year result. The others provided trading updates and they report uh, next month. Um, so that'll be that'll be interesting. Um, but yeah, big, big downgrades from the banks, as you'd expect in, in an, a short, sharp recession. Um, followed by insurance, uh, awful results from IOG, QBE and the like. Um, the telco sector, so again, Telstra continue under underperform utilities, um, AGL had a shocker, and, and, and the rates. Now, what's interesting about that is traditionally, you know, telecommunications, utilities, real estate investment trust, they would traditionally be some of the more defensive sectors that you would expect to hold up in a more constrained or challenged economic environment, um, but they were some of the hardest hit. Um, so some of those defensive sectors have, have been the worst performers. And conversely, um, what, what, what's interesting is that, that, you know, some of the more economically sensitive sectors um, actually hold up really well. Um, so resources, X energy um, held up well. So we only had about a 2% decline in earnings for the resource complex. And I'll touch on that a little bit, bit later. Um, healthcare um, held up really well, as you would expect. Um, but surprisingly, um, you know, retail did really, really well. You know, normally if, you, if, you, if you're in the middle of a recession, um, discretionary retail spending drops off a cliff and you'd expect those retailers to struggle. But the massive cash handouts that we've had, um, as well as, you know, six months of mortgage relief has meant that people's savings rates have actually increased over this period. Um, and there's been, you know, elevated retail um, spending. So, you know, discretionary retail spending has almost been higher now than it was at, at, at the start of the year. There's a bit of risk to that, obviously. These are companies like JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman. Spot on, yeah, JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman. Um, Baby Bunting, which we hold in, in, in the mid-cap portfolios, done done really well. So, yeah, all of those discretionary um, stocks. Mm -hmm. Things, um, Kogan as well, the online guys, um, you know, everybody's been been spending all of their uh, their job seeker payments online by the looks of it. <laughs> but obviously there's, there's a bit of risk to that. So... Um, you know, we're, we're concerned and we've got a pretty cautious outlook on the banks, but we're concerned that as we get through to next year, um, you know, the large end of corporate Australia is going to be okay, but there's really going to be an SME, a small, you know, and medium business uh, insolvency crisis sort of next year. And so as, as you get the job seeker rolling off and, you know, as you get the banks you know, they've given a lot of lenders a mortgage holiday, um, but eventually they're going to be bankers again and you're going to have to start repaying your home loan. Um, so we're a bit concerned about what happens next year and, and we, we don't want to chase those discretionary retailers uh, at the moment because, you know, the, the, the tailwinds that they've had could become headwinds over the next six to 12 months. Uh, and finally, food staples. So, you know, your Woolies and Coles have done exceptionally well. Um, you know, all the stockpiling and everybody sitting at home um, cooking meals has, has been brilliant for, for, for Coles and, and Woolies. Um, so the expensive defensives, this was the other theme that we really saw, and, and this, this um, really talks to the tech question that you asked. So, you know, th those, those um, structural growth stocks who have been able to grow their earnings um, for whatever structural tailwind, and that and that is largely the tech complex, um, but some of those healthcare stocks, um, some of the media stocks here, and I'll, I'll run through a few of them. Um, 
they did exceptionally well throughout this reporting period um, and they were expensive coming into the results but ultimately in that um, macro environment that I mentioned of ultra low growth you know no inflation um, you know um, uh, low rates then you know these structural growth stocks should perform well now we, we were hoping that we'd get a bit of a pullback in some of those stocks and and we'd be able to buy them more add to them um, but they came into reporting season expensive and they traded um, to even more expensive levels um, so there's been a lot of money um, chasing um, not so many sort of growth stocks in the, in the Aussie market. Uh, again, though, the, the little pullback that we've had in the last week or so is starting to open up some opportunities. But what, what you've seen is this massive dispersion in the valuation of different parts of the market. And I'll touch on that in a bit of detail because that, that I think is opening up some opportunities as well. Um, so really the reporting period was all about, you know, those opposing forces of the, the, the stocks that benefited from, you know, the government stimulus um, and, and there were clear COVID winners and, and, and losers. Okay, so our broad positioning, um, you know, coming out of this environment, as I mentioned, we want exposure to those structural growth stocks, but at the right price, which is which is critical. Um, we also want exposure to defensive yield. As I mentioned, you know, I think as we continue to get through this, there's going to be more money coming out of, you know, no zero yielding cash and deposit and, and kind of bond portfolios um, chasing yield anywhere else. Um, but we don't think you necessarily want to get that from the banks or from the property trusts. Um, there's been a lot written, so I won't spend too much time on that, but about, you know, the issues with the retail property space. Um, now that structural shift to online was already happening and already hurting the sector and this has accelerated it. Um, but also, um, you know, concerns around just how much office space we'll need going forward, whether some of the themes that we've seen throughout this period, as I mentioned, you know, are, are accelerating structural change that could be, a, you know, a long-term tailwind for, for that um, property trust sector. Um, and we're seeing continued kind of equity raisings as they all try to repair their balance sheet. So we're kind of looking for defensive yield in things like consumer staples and infrastructure looks really, um, really interesting to us and, and I'll touch on that. The other one, which um, I never thought I would say, but you can actually look at the resource sector for yield at the moment. Um, and I've got a, a chart on Rio that I'll show just how much cash they are spitting out and, and the kind of dividends we can expect from Rio over the next two to three years. And then finally, um, while those expensive growth stocks have gotten more expensive. Some of the value and cyclical names that are very leveraged to the economic recovery and, and the vaccine trade, we think you want part of your portfolio there as well, um, as because they should, you know, outperform as, as the world get back, gets back to normal. Okay, Adrian, just as you touched on, on just as you touch on resources, there, we've got a question. Um, gold, will probably, sure. if we do get a vaccine and, and the market takes a bit of a recovery. Um, gold prices, which obviously have been going through the roof as of late, especially with, yeah. with uncertain markets. Um, the question is there, gold will probably take a hit. Wouldn't you think so? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, it, it's it's an interesting one that gold, gold did exceptionally well for a period there. And again, it was linked, I think, to ultra low rates. So, you know, historically, um, you know, holding gold as a store of value actually costs money to do that. So if you got your money in the bank account in a normal environment, you're getting two or three percent, um, you know, that 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 that. that has uh, an impact on the value of cash and cash assets, whereas it costs you to hold gold. Now, in the middle of this crisis, when central banks cut rates to 25 basis points, you had you know most of the European complex with negative rates, um, and and the US got very close to negative rates as well. So all of a sudden, um, gold as a store of value became far more attractive. Um, so you saw a, a phenomenal run in gold. It also tends to do very well in uncertain times. Um, if you're the sort of person that likes charting and technicals, um, if you look at the gold price, um, the moving averages are literally kind of running in a triangle at the moment. So it looks like it could break either way and you would want to either buy or sell the break. Um, to me, I think the break is probably going to be down um, as, yeah, as you say, if the world starts getting back to normal and currently the market is not pricing in any rate hikes for a couple of years. But if we're sitting here in the middle of next year and you do have synchronised global growth, the world has to start thinking about sort of higher rates. Um, so I think for the time being, gold's kind of had its moment in the sun. 
Um, and but if you're a technical kind of trader, I'd, I'd be looking just to watch which, which which way it breaks. If, for example, we saw you know broad lockdowns happening again in parts of the world because of this second wave, um, then all of a sudden, you know, I, I think I will have a, a, another pretty strong leg up. Yeah, beautiful. Man. Thanks. Uh, no which worries. Um, sorry, what was that one? Which we're seeing now, obviously, with with what's happening in the UK, some more, more lockdowns seem to be uh, yeah seem to be coming. Yeah, spot on, spot on. And I won't get into a political debate about whether I think that's right or wrong. Well, I'll just say I think it's wrong. Um, you know, I, th I, th I think the cure is is becoming far worse than the disease. Um, certainly, if if they do start to lock down again. Um, but we're starting to see signs of it, um, so that's really one to, to 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 watch closely. And and that would fundamentally where where we have a broader view that we want to buy the dips. If you did start seeing you know broad lockdowns again, then you'd want to significantly increase your cash levels um, because you know the the little five percent correction that, that that we've seen could become a ten or a fifteen pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, so if I look at the, the market, and, and this is just the, the, the underlying um, composition of the market, just into the broad base sectors and, and the earnings that they've delivered. So you can see the, the overall market earnings came, up, came off about 20%. Um, resource sector earnings held up really well. Um, now, if we look at the broad market, the, really analysts out there aren't expecting earnings to recover to where they were till the 2022-23 financial year. Um, so we've got fairly flat earnings here from Macquarie. If I look at Bloomberg consensus, you've got about 6% earnings growth coming through. Um, so they're a bit more cautious than the market. Um, but resources held up really well. So after delivering you know, 20% earnings growth last financial year, um, the resource sector's earnings held up really well. Um, now, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on this in a bit more detail later, but the market's currently got earnings coming off for the resource sector, but that's just a real, really a function of them um, normalising commodity prices back to the sort of long run average. So we actually think there's there's some upside risk there and we think that number could move from negative to positive and that, 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 that the resource sector is actually in an upgrade cycle. The banks, wow, we 30% decline in earnings there, um, expecting a bounce back over the next couple of years, but that is obviously reliant on, you know, vaccines and how long we are locked down. Um, so that's a very, very difficult number to try to predict at the moment. Trying to predict what happens with bad and doubtful debts of the banks um, is going to be really, really difficult. Um, I'll touch on that a bit later as well. Um, so then breaking up the other sectors, um, as you would expect, you know, your staples held up pretty well. Healthcare held up really well, but insurance, diversified financials, um, communication services, utilities and, and REITs were all, were all pretty tough. Um, and for some of those sectors, we're not expecting a rebound next year as well, uh, or a rebound next year either, um, which means that you know we're happy to to completely avoid them. Okay, so sector performance, uh, we've touched on this one already, um, but what it showed you is the companies or sectors of the market that that, that were able to to um, you know deliver earnings that were roughly in line with last year. Um, had phenomenal performance. So what it meant is earnings declined slightly, but share prices went up a long way, which meant that they went from being relatively expensive to even more expensive. Um, so things like IT, if we look at healthcare, you know, earnings down sort of 2%, but stocks up 16% over the last 12 months. Um, IT, obviously, that's that's the buy now, pay later sector that's that's done exceptionally well. But zero and a few of those other, other large cap IT stocks. Um, materials um, did well, so that's the resources that I'm talking about, and consumer staples. Um, so you had a, a pocket of the market, but it was really only those sort of five sectors that delivered positive share price returns over the last year. And as you would expect, energy, financials, rates, um, those COVID losers um, were uh, were all, all belted over the course of the year. Having said that, some of these, like energy, we, we think look, look fairly interesting. Okay, this is the PE dispersion that I mentioned. So coming through August, um, the share price reactions were, were really interesting. Um, so what, what this shows is in blue, the earnings revision. So what that means, if it's um, something positive, so if we look at retailing here, what that means is that the retailers delivered earnings that were slightly above the analysts' expectations. So they slightly beat 
the analyst expectations, but you saw share prices pop 10% on the back of it. Um, so with the tech, um, with healthcare, for example, um, so some of these sectors slightly missed the market's expectations, but the share prices still rallied. Um, so that to us was um, a bit perplexing, but really I think it, it's all been driven by style rotation or fund flow. So, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm not sure if there's too much jargon here, um, just let me know. But, um, you know, you've got different style managers out there. There are growth managers that have done exceptionally well over the last few years. And there are value managers that have had an incredibly tough period. Um, and going back uh, a couple of months, there was a, fair, a few articles in the press, so it's fairly well known, but a few, um, you know, high quality, um, long-term value managers lost big mandates. They lost, you know, sort of one and a half billion dollar mandates. Um, and all of that money is going across to these growth managers. So they're getting huge fund flows and all that money is then going into a handful of those growth stocks in our market. So despite these companies slightly missing and already being expensive, you've just got this wall of money um, that's been chasing these stocks. So the great companies, we like them. Um, but the point that I mentioned earlier is we like them at the right price. Um, but even, you know, it was really interesting how we, we, the market started at 6,000, it finished at 6,000, even sectors that disappointed. So, you know, telcos, utilities, the set banks that, that, that delivered results that were, um, you know, analysts were expecting the results of the banks to be sort of 30% lower, but they missed even that. Um, same with telcos and utilities, but the share prices actually pushed up during reporting periods. So it um, was a really unusual environment, but we're starting to see that shake out um, a little bit now. It's quite okay, surprising around the telco space, though. You'd think, Adrian, the common sense would suggest that with a huge dependency on the on the global population requiring the, the services of telco, you would actually think that that particular sector would perform very well. Yeah, look, it should be, um, but the, the, the two, um, a few interesting things. So Tel Telstra is obviously the biggest driver in that space. It's kind of the, the, the you know, dominant stock in, in that complex. So, um, you know, the broad sector numbers are really reflective more of Telstra than the others. Um, but really the one, the, the, the biggest driver for Telstra or negative driver for Telstra is, is um, the NBN rollout. So, you know, Telstra's old business where they had, you know, ISDN broadband going into households, their margin on that broadband business was almost 50%. Um, their margin on reselling the NBN is, was about 1.5%, I think, in, that, in, in, in the um, full-year result. So this massive shift to the NBN with all the telcos trying to resell the NBN and it's a land grab, but they're trying to do it and making no money out of it. Um, so that's the biggest drag on, on Telstra. Now, the mobile business eventually will turn around and they should do okay. But the other thing which was interesting is they, um, they there was something like a two or $300 million hit um, because there was no international roaming. So if you think about all the, the, um, yeah, all the Aussies that have mobile phones that, that go overseas for work, for holiday, for whatever, um, nobody's been allowed to leave the country for 12 months. So, um, so and they, likewise they with the tourists, yeah. Likewise with yeah, tourists. Spot on. Yeah, no tourists coming in. Yeah, spot yeah. on. So, you know, so they had, you know, one part of their, their business was, was really adversely affected. Um, so, yeah, in, interesting space, but you're right. Um, it, it should be a space that would do well, but it's really the NBN that's causing a big structural headwind to, to all of those telcos. Um, eventually that will get sorted out and eventually there'll be winners and losers and I'd back Telstra probably to be a winner, um, but I still think that's a couple of years mm. away. Now, Adrian, I'm just thinking about time sure. and our audience. I was hoping if we could maybe get your um, your view on PEs. No worries. Uh, your price to earnings multiple. And then if we could go into some of the, the stock focuses that you've been looking at. No worries. And um, then we'll take some questions. Not a problem. I might just flick through to some of the stock um, fundamentals. This this is an interesting one. The comment that I made about you know looking at some of the resource stocks for yield. Um, so th th this chart here just shows the iron ore price. So the iron ore price is about one hundred and twenty five dollars a ton at the moment. This shows the long long term price going back to twenty twelve. Um, so at the moment it's about one hundred and twenty four dollars. Um, and you'd expect that to be weak during a recession, but obviously, um, you know, China had a short, sharp slowdown, and then it was, you know, back back on the tools. Um, so at the moment, and these are just Citigroup numbers, they've got a forecast iron ore price of $100 this year, 
um, spots 124. That's probably about right. There's only a few months to go. And then they've got it normalizing to $90 next year, then $80, then $60 in from 21, 22, 23. Um, for as long as I've known, analysts have always normalized the price three years out. So, you know, if the final price is $20, they'll have it going up to 63 years out. If it's 100, they'll have it going down to 60, sort of three years out. Um, now, given that iron ore price assumption, which I, I think is is pretty conservative, so you've got iron ore going from 125 all the way back down to $60 over the next two and a half years. Um, now, if that is what actually happens, um, Rio will spit out enough cash and finally we're seeing the resource stocks, the BHPs and Rios who have a horrific history of M&A and buying businesses at the top of the cycle and blowing up capital. Really, since the GFC, they've done the right thing. They've just managed the assets. They've tried to reduce their cost of production. They've spit out a heap of cash and they're returning it to shareholders. So if the iron ore price goes from 90 to 80 to 60, on Citi's numbers, they'll pay an average dividend yield, fully franked, of 9% over the next three years. Um, now, these used to be highly, highly cyclical businesses, and historically you would never have thought of, you know, holding a, uh, a resource stock for yield, but the BHPs, the Rios, the Fortescue, if you want something a little bit pointier, um, these guys are spitting out phenomenal amounts of cash, um, and I think they will just continue to return it to shareholders over the next few years. Um, the banks, I might flick over this unless there's specific questions, but really this chart just talks to how banks have proved to be the ultimate cyclical stock again where we've had an economic downturn, their earnings have been smashed and that's on the back of you know, three years of huge remediation costs coming out of the Royal Commission. Um, so, you know, NAB's dividend is not forecast to get back to $1.23 until 2023. Now, that's still 24% lower than where it was pre-GFC and pre this correction. Um, so you've had a period of declining earnings and declining dividends from the banks that doesn't look like turning around over the next 12 to 18 months in, in our opinion. Um, some of the places that we would look for yields, so as I mentioned, you know, um, the resource sector, um, but some of these value stocks, so that money that I talked about that's been taken away from value managers and chasing growth managers, a lot of these guys hold similar stocks um, and, and that's actually opening up some pockets of real value, we think. So, you know, Horizon is just the old um, QR national, um, so it owns, you know, um, um, uh, rolling stock um, and, and tracks in Queensland and up and down the East Coast. Most of their customers are all on take or pay um, contracts. Um, so this is a business that actually grew earnings for the year and put the dividend up for the year and is forecast to increase their dividend again next year. It's forecast to pay about 26 cents per share fully franked. So that gives you about a 6% dividend yield um, fully franked. Um, from mostly pay or take or pay contracts. So we see very little risk that that's not going to be met. Um, but you can see what the, 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 the um, share price reaction is there's been that rotation out of value um, into growth. Um, so the, the red line, the blue line here just shows the Horizon share price. The red line there um, shows the dividends that, that Horizon's paying. There's a clear disconnect there um, that, that, that we think is interesting and, and attractive and we'd much rather own that for defensive yield than, than the banks. Um, some of the COVID losers. Just quickly, Adrian, just to step in, just remind yep. everyone that this sort of general information we're talking about. Um, Absolutely. While we are focusing on specific stocks, of course, um, do your own research um, and seek advice from professional. But that's all I'll say. I'll let you hand it over because I know Sydney Airports has been getting a great amount of attention from a lot of people. Yeah, look, I, I think it's um, probably one of the best buyers in the market. And from our broad portfolio positioning, at the start of this year, we had no infrastructure in the portfolio um, because the whole sector looked too expensive to us. Um, but in this environment, we saw all of those stocks um, come off, you know, 20, 30, 40% pretty quickly. Um, and this very much is a short-term issue that will wash through. So trans, we put Transurban into the portfolio in March. Um, and we've just added uh, Sydney airports to the portfolio over the last week. So this is, you know, clearly a business that has, um, you know, it's a critical piece of Australian infrastructure. It's still going to be a critical piece of Australian infrastructure in 100 years. Um, there's obviously zero traffic going through the airport at the moment. Um, they, they raised $2 billion. And again, this is where we say you need to be a bit um, patient. 
Um, they raised $2 billion to shore up the balance sheet so the equity raises out of the way. They can now get through this period and hopefully we're sitting here in you know, 12, 18 months' time and things are back to normal. Um, interestingly, during the reporting period, when they did the equity raise, it was being done at a 15% discount. We thought and went into trading off for three days. We thought, you beauty. Uh, we'll get a, an opportunity to have a, have a decent swing here. It started trading and it was up 5% that day and then 3% the next day. So that's, that's this spike here. Um, but anyway, we're, we're, we're patient. Um, and as this dragged on and Victoria went into the second lockdown, um, share price you know, got kicked back to $5.50. I'd be very surprised if, if it's not back to sort of $8 in, in a couple of years and they'll return to paying dividends, I think, towards the end of next year. Um, so some of these COVID losers we think look really interesting. The other, um, so I mentioned we added Transurban. We like these infrastructure stocks for yield, maybe not for the next six to 12 months, but going further out. Atlas Arteria, we also added to the portfolio. So it's effectively a Transurban, but it owns toll road predominantly in Europe. So it owns one key toll road that runs through France. Now, most of Europe is back to normal um, and their volumes are almost back to normal, but the share price is still sort of 30% below where it was. Um, so we like we like that. Um, Cochlea, um, this is a good example of, of a really high quality structural growth stock. It's like a CSL, it's clearly the dominant player in this sector globally. Um, they spend you know, more on R&D than all of their competitors combined and, and you know, which will see them always ahead of the technology curve. Um, now, when the lockdown happened, um, elective surgery was effectively shut down globally. Um, if I look at Europe now, elective surgery is back to about 80% of the level that it was before the lockdown. It's still locked down here, but most of the rest of the world is getting back to elective surgery. Again, Cochlear raised a couple of billion dollars and they've continued to invest in R&D all throughout this period. So that's a great example of, now, now this is one of those stocks that it reported a result that was you know, pretty weak. It was down some 20% on the year before and had a pretty, pretty weak outlook because the lockdown was still ongoing, but it popped almost 10% on the day of the result. So it was a good, an example of one of those structural growth stocks that was expensive that got even more expensive. Um, having said that, we were patient um, and it, it got back to $1.90, uh, bottom end of the trading range, and, and we put that into the portfolio just last week. Um, so here's, here's our overall portfolio. Happy to share it with you. We're, we're effectively breaking the portfolio into three parts. So defensive yield, um, which are the consumer staples, the infrastructure stocks that I mentioned we put in there, global packaging with Amcor, um, horizon that I mentioned um, and we that was that was 18 percent we actually we bought a half holding in Atlas Sydney um, and actually topped those up yesterday so the, the infrastructure part of our portfolio has gone from zero at the start of the year it will be over 10 percent and those defensive yield stocks will be getting up to about 23 percent of the portfolio so about a quarter of the portfolio leverage to defensive yield. We've then got those structural growth stocks, um, the aristocrats, Cochlear, CSL, ResMed, Sonic, um, and we put Goodman Group in there as well. Um, you know, a bit like this, um, you know, the online trade, um, Goodman Group in industrial real estate is very much leveraged um, to, you know, the online retail thematic globally. Um, and then the other part of the portfolio that we've built, and these are the COVID losers, is that if the economy does improve over the next 12 to 18 months, then these are the secret stocks that are leveraged to an improvement in that global economy. So they're things like the uh, energy stocks. We've got Origin Oil Search Woodside. Um, we think the oil price should be you know, a fair bit higher 12 months from now when there's planes back in the sky again. Um, something like Star Entertainment Group, you know, um, Monopoly Assets, Queensland um, casinos in, in, in Sydney, um, Queensland, um, that were shut down for a period. Um, now their volumes will get back to normal. Um, and we do still have some of the banks in there, despite our negative view. Um, now, we're very underweight, the banks, so we're nearly 10% underweight financials. And the only reason we've got those three there is that they are actually three of the big four are trading below book value at the moment. So as we open up, I would expect the banks to pop back to kind of book value or maybe a bit of a premium, um, but we'll be looking to, 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 to lighten our exposure further into that. That's pretty much all that I have, um, but happy to take as many questions as you have. 
Beautiful, mate. Um, that was a fantastic presentation. I might kick it off the first question, um, Daniel, if that's all right. Um, just on, you spoke about Sydney airports, obviously travel stocks. Travel stocks is what one of the questions asked, uh, one of the questions asked throughout the presentation. Um, where do you see travel stocks going? Uh, if there is a vaccine or if we do open up, how do you look at yeah, it? Yeah, we, we've avoided the pointier end of the sector, if that makes sense. So, you know, things like a Webjet, you know, Web, Webjet almost went belly up um, during this environment. They had to had to raise a fair bit of money. So, you know, Webjet, Flight Centre, some of those kind of travel stocks, um, you know, they've started to rebound. Flight Centre, I think, got to $10. It's about $13 now. Um, but... Um, to me, there is still a fair bit of risk around those over the next three to six months. So we'd rather play it through, you know, a Sydney airport, through some of those, you know, the transurbans, through some of those bigger infrastructure plays at this point in time until we're comfortable that... Because the, the, the problem that we have here in Australia is that while most of the rest of the world is opening up, we're an island state. So trying to get a handle on when a vaccine will be effective enough to allow our borders to open, which is what you need for those travel stocks to perform, is very, very hard to tell. Now, that could be three months, that could be nine months, it could be, you know, 15 months. If it's closer to 12 months than three months, then these stocks have a pretty tough time ahead of them. Um, so we, we, we'd rather play it more conservatively at this point in time um, until you are really confident that the borders are going to open up. Makes sense. Daniel, take do you have any questions, Matt? Uh, no, selling my flight center. Um, we uh, <laughs> not personal advice. <laughs> just, <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just, just. I mean, what is the view of watersheds on some of the airlines? I mean, is there do, do they think that they've kind of bottomed out, or do you think there's a potential for them to have further to go with the rest of the world opening up? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, very hard to tell uh, with a Qantas. Um, you know, Qantas should come out of this reasonably well because their main competitor is going to be very constrained. Um, so Virgin tried to take on Qantas as a full-service airline um, and under the new private equity kind of ownership, I think it will be cut back to a kind of a more core service and a more budget airline again which should give Qantas a much more dominant position um, as we come through this. Having said that, though, every month that goes by that our state borders are locked and our international borders are locked, um, I think Qantas is, is, I'm trying to remember the figures, but it's, it's losing a lot of money every month. Um, so, uh, again, until you're comfortable that those borders are going to open up, I, I think there's, there's still probably a bit of risk there. And it probably is vaccine dependent because you know we've got we've got countries in Europe that are, yeah. are running a completely different COVID strategy than Australia. Um, obviously, Australia's got yeah. that suppression contain strategy. Um, that's obviously going to have some impact on Qantas in the long term. And with a complete disalignment, I guess you know the only thing that could probably steer Qantas into the green would probably be the um, the global implementation of a COVID nineteen vaccine. Spot on. I mean, I saw a headline this morning that apparently three cases in WA have popped up now and they, they've had no cases for ages and it was three return travellers. So, you know, that's just another example of, of uh, I think, the government response will be to continue to have a lockdown until they're 100% certain that, 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 that we have a vaccine that works and trying to get a vaccine that's, you know, manufactured in volume that's then, you know, distributed among the population to the point that we get that herd immunity. Um, you know, the US, they're talking about some volume by Christmas, but if we look at a CSL, for example, who's involved in a couple of those trials, they're still talking, you know, June next year. Um, so, you know, to me, that's still a long time in financial markets. Um, so, you know, February, we're going to get the half year results for these companies, and I don't think it's likely that we're going to have borders opened up by Feb. So I think there's still a, a bit more pain before before you know, you get you get the upside there. Unfortunately. Now, Adrian, I know, I know you guys mm. have taken a fairly good look at resources and you're fairly bullish on the sector, um, particularly some of the larger names. But um, mm. there's been a question reached out about energy. Um, obviously, energy stocks have not done well in the past. No. Um, shine some light on what's happened to the energy sector. Yeah, look, sure can. Uh, so, you know, what's amazing 
a little while ago during lockdown that the uh, the futures contract oil price actually closed negative uh, for a period there. So with all of the planes on the ground and everybody in lockdown globally, um, oil stockpiles were building to the point that the world was actually running out of storage capacity. Um, so the futures contract actually went negative for a period there. So it was literally no zero dollar oil price. Um, now that's an incredibly um, unusual period. Um, now, I, I think, um, you know, the oil price is back to sort of $40 and it's bouncing around a lot on virus news. Um, our view is that, you know, as, as, as the world gets back to normal over the next 12 months, we're probably going to see a, a, an oil price a little bit higher. Now, taking a longer term view, um, what we've seen, and, and, and again, it's another theme that's been accelerated through this period. So over the last few years with the world's kind of, you know, transition to renewables, there has been less and less and less money spent on exploration and bringing new production online. So a lot of the world's oil fields are actually in decline at the moment. And again, this is accelerated. So there's no new oil coming to market over the next you know, two to three years. So if you take a longer term view, we're, we're actually, we've got you know, demand that really probably hasn't tapered very much, but production starting to decline. So taking a longer term view, we're actually pretty constructive on the oil price. Um, but it's it's going to take a little while for the world to get back to normal and for, for some of those excess inventories to be knocked out of the system. Um, but certainly buying some of those oil and gas stocks with a 12 to 18 month view, um, we think it's one of the last remaining real pockets of value in, in our market. Beautiful. Daniel, any more questions, mate? Look, uh, I'd be doing the group a great disservice if we didn't talk a little bit about BMPL, the buy now, pay, pay later uh, yeah. sector. Um, it's it's really probably been the the buzz stock in our group probably for the last well, since March. Mm. Um, what's Watershed's view on buy now pay later stocks? Um, do they see uh, continued growth in the short, medium, long term, or do they see it sort of topping out at some point in the near future? Uh, look, we we hold afterpay in our mid cap portfolio, and we have held that since well since it was below two dollars, so it's been been, been a ripper for us. Um, it's look. It, it, it's a, it's a sector that is continuing to grow, and we think it will continue to grow globally. Um, one of the huge endorsements of Afterpay is that a lot of the big global competitors are now actually joining forces with Afterpay. Um, so it's had you know the banks and the credit card companies and you know <laughs> the um, um, the traditional payment sector trying to compete with it and they're now actually joining forces with it, which to me, um, you know, is a, is a huge vote of confidence in, in the, the, their strategy. Um, now, they, they, their rollout in the US um, was more successful than we expected um, and now they're rolling out in Europe and, again, it's beating all expectations. So they are becoming a true global kind of payments, payments player. So we really like the space, um, but, again, with all of these tech stocks, you do still need to be a bit mindful of valuation. Um, you know, we, we we chopped our holding in half when it went through 50 and sure enough, a couple of months later, it was $90. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot priced into the value of this sector at the moment. Um, so, you know, short term, we're a bit cautious valuation wise, but, you know, we, we, we think Afterpay's executed really well. Um, yeah, and you need to have belief that they can continue to execute globally to kind of justify the value of the business now, but certainly they've ticked all the boxes so far. There's been a lot of media about new entrants in the market and some of the more traditional mm -hmm. players uh, coming to the market. So we have a PayPal offering a, a buy now, pay later offering, uh, the banks looking at, at rolling out um, interest-free mm -hmm. credit cards. Do you think any of these other sort of services being uh, flooded into the market Will have an impact on, um, um, on some of the. I, 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 they've all tried um, over the last while, and they've not been able to gain traction. And one of the real advantages for um, someone like Afterpay and the bank pay, pay now the buy now pay later sector is that they have such a strong relationship with the retailers. So they're shooting huge numbers of referrals back to the retailers. 
So they're almost creating a bit of a retailing ecosystem as well as a payment system. So it's very hard for you know the, the, the banks and some of those traditional incumbent utilities to 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 you know aggressively attack the space. I think um, to me it's a little bit like um, you know the early days of Seek and REA.com and you know we had Monster. So in the early days of of employment online, you had three or four groups that were competing aggressively, and it was a real land grab. Um, but you ended up with one dominant player and then it's incredibly difficult for others to compete once they've got that market foothold. You saw it with the employment space. You've seen it with, you know, the real estate dot coms, the, the, the online advertising space. And I think now um, the deals that Afterpay has done with, with the big global majors is, is testament to the fact that I think they're starting to win that, that, that global land grab. Um, so I think, you know, it's going to be pretty hard for, for the banks and for those traditional um, payment systems to, to, to compete. Um, but I always do bring it bring it back to price. So there's a lot built into the price of all of those at the moment. You see after pay jumping up from $10 to nearly $100, things are going a bit crazy. All I can say yeah. is let's hope the rockets, let's hope the rockets keep flying um, for everyone in the group. <laughs> um, there, there was a question about uh, an ETF potentially coming up in the buy now, pay later space. So whoever asked that question, um, we've got a few uh, episodes coming up. Um, a few education events with ETF providers, so Vanek and BetaShares. Um, I know, look, some of these providers have started uh, ETFs in the online gaming space. Um, I wouldn't be – we can ask the question about the buy now, pay later space, so don't worry about that. Um, look, I'm probably going to end it there, Adrian. Um, an amazing presentation. Thank you so much uh, for your time. I do oh, really no appreciate you coming on. Um, Daniel, thank you for sponsoring. Thank you for starting the group. Um, did you want to have a quick 30 seconds about McDonald Legal, just so everyone knows what you do? Oh, sure. Yes, so McDonald Legal are a full-service law firm, uh, commercial property, state planning, um, uh, self-managed super funds, anything in that space. So uh, uh, operating out of Victoria, but we um, operate in all, all jurisdictions. So. Beautiful, mate. Thanks a lot. And at Angel Advisory, if you're looking to build an investment portfolio, that's what we do for a living. We also focus on tax planning and superannuation. Adrian? Uh, we use you in our portfolios. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you coming on. Um, again, mate, very insightful. Thank you very much. No worries at all. Pleasure. To everyone out there, thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed it. See you later. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Investor Types podcast. What I want to remind you is that everything you heard in this podcast is general advice only. Please don't consider it as personal advice. If you do want to consider it as being personal advice, please go and speak to your licensed financial planner. Everything here is just informational purposes only. Take it as you will. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Thanks again for tuning in. See you soon.